Hello, creep. It's felt like forever since you and I were able to talk. And to be honest, I missed your company. A lot of you left five-star reviews after listening to last week's episode, and I have seen an astonishing number of you sharing this podcast with your friends. So thank you. Five-star reviews and sharing this podcast are so important if we want to grow our little family. So as I begin telling you today's tale, I'd like you to sit back and relax. Plug in your headphones or blast this in the car. Perhaps it's past your bedtime. That's fine. Put in your AirPods and listen under the covers. This week's episode is particularly disturbing with graphic language and imagery. I definitely do not suggest listening to this out loud if there's people around who might not appreciate it. My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You walk into the woods. What do you hear? Frogs and crickets are singing, but you don't see them. They are just a part of the forest as an abstract. An idea. The leaves and twigs under your feet punctuating your journey, every step a collection of small destruction under your heels. You never know what you'll get when you walk into the woods, adventure or absolute horror. Does the thick brush behind your house or across the street from you provide a sanctuary of solitude, an escape from the concrete and cars, from the work schedules and school pressures, or perhaps in it are hidden the secrets someone thought they buried deep enough? You've been in there for some time now. The sun is rising and you're protected from the starchy morning rays by the canvas of treetops that hide this little world from the vibrant swing from night to day. Older trees have fallen to the ground and now have new life springing from the tops while the edge along the ground is slowly swallowed by the fetid undergrowth. Close your eyes for a moment and just listen. Open your eyes. What do you expect to see? A body, perhaps? No. We never expect to see another person expired, a mirror reflecting our own mortality back at us. But on June 2nd, 1981, when the Villa Park Police responded to a call at Briar Rabbit Motel roughly 40 kilometers outside of Chicago, That's exactly what they saw when they entered the woods after complaints of a strong and unpleasant smell. Police found the body of a young African-American woman laying face down in the woods behind the motel. Her hands were handcuffed behind her with expensive nickel-plated handcuffs. She was wearing a sweater and naked from the waist down her underwear around her knees, and $17 stuffed in her sock. Police were unable to identify the body at the scene, 
and there was no identification magically laying about to aid them. As far as they could tell, the body had been out there decomposing slowly, and frankly, police found it odd that there had been no complaints about the smell until now. How had no one come across the body, or smelt the decomposition until now? As they rolled the body over, they saw the answer to their unspoken question. Normally, when a person becomes deceased, bugs enter the body through an orifice, like the mouth, but in this case, there were stab wounds through which the bugs entered. Not only were there stab wounds, but she was also the victim of an amateur mastectomy. In other words, her left breast had been removed. The deputy coroner at the scene pointed this out and making note that it was likely the body hadn't been out there as long as originally thought on first sight. With one question answered, now police were left wondering, why had someone removed her breast? Was it a deviance like paraphilia, or a symbolic gesture against her femininity? And finally, like many sick and depraved, bloodthirsty killers before, had the assailant taken her breast purely as a memento? They knew it was a young woman, but the decomposition made her unrecognizable. So police sent the dental records off and prepared to perform an autopsy on the body. During the autopsy, it became quickly apparent that the assumption made by the deputy coroner that she hadn't been dead as long as the state of the body at the scene had suggested was right. And her time of death was estimated to be three days before police had found the body. Then the dental records came back with the match. The body found behind Briar Rabbit Motel hidden in the woods was 26-year-old Linda Sutton. Investigators now had a starting point to work from. Armed with the name, Villa Park Police approached Chicago PD to see if they could gather more information or evidence surrounding this girl and the tragic circumstance that led to her brutal murder. In the call to Chicago PD, investigators explained the crime scene. They explained the state they had found her body. And they went back to that $17 stuffed in her sock. I'm not a police officer, and it's likely that you aren't either. So to us, $17 stuffed in a sock seems quirky or weird. Maybe paranoid if we're feeling a little dramatic. But to investigators, this was a red flag. That Linda Sutton was possibly a prostitute, and Chicago PD agreed that it sounded like she was probably a working girl from the city. Both the Villa Park Police Department and Chicago PD began the investigation into Linda Sutton. They canvassed notorious corners and streets, they started talking to other working girls, trying to find anything that might lead them a step closer to finding out what happened, or who happened, to Linda. Did you know Linda Sutton? Do you recognize her? Are there any notoriously violent or unstable clients that you're afraid of? Did Linda have regulars that might have been possessive? These are all questions that the police were asking. After a couple of dead-end leads, though, 
the case sadly went cold. Solving murders or other crimes against prostitutes is difficult. In most places, prostitution is illegal, which means that most of it happens where records of transactions aren't kept. There are no credit cards to track, there are no lobby security cameras. No working girl wants to rat out a John, afraid that it might affect their livelihood. Not to mention they would self-incriminate or not be taken seriously, as it becomes a he said versus she said situation. So often crimes of rape and violence go unreported and unpunished. And when working girls do go missing, they're oftentimes not reported missing. Their co-workers might think they transitioned out of the lifestyle and profession. Or their family thinks the inverse, and to compound the issue, many of these women don't have close family or friends, and that lack of a support system has led them into this lifestyle. We aren't talking about escorts, we aren't talking about college students trying to make a little money on the side as a sugar baby. And I don't condemn these women, or in some cases men. I just want you to think for a second. Had your parents been less present in your life? Had you found yourself without friends to turn to? Do you think you could have ended up in a similar circumstance? Had you been a victim of trauma or forgotten by society, penniless, with little education, or in some instances unable to find a job? Don't you think it's plausible that you could have ended up outside the bounds of what we would consider society? Don't tell yourself no. Don't think to yourself this is an impossibility. Either myself or you, my friend, could have ended up in their shoes had life played out a different way. We shouldn't judge these women unless you or I are willing to judge ourselves. A year passed and the case of Linda's murder now cold. No leads, no persons of interest, and Chicago had moved on. The news cycle forgot the name Linda Sutton. People slept a little easier at night. A woman killer was on the loose. They'd only killed a prostitute, right? What do you expect when you get into a stranger's car for sex? Then a woman named Lori Borowski was abducted outside her work. And Lori wasn't a prostitute. She hadn't voluntarily gotten in anyone's car. Shortly after 9 a.m. on May 15, 1982, police received a call that a young woman named Lori had been abducted outside the real estate office where she worked. Her co-workers had arrived around 9 a.m. to find the doors locked, which was strange as they all knew Lori was to be there before them to unlock the doors and turn on the lights. They were annoyed and not uneasy at first, until one of her co-workers noticed keys and cosmetics scattered and spilt on the ground in the parking lot in front of the office. And there were Lori's shoes, sitting there on the ground, as if she had been ripped so quickly from reality that they were left stuck in time, an imprint of where she once stood. And that's when police were called. Lori's parents had also been notified as it became clear that Lori had in fact been abducted, 
and police began investigating immediately, as well as Lori's parents, who began searching frantically, starting with her apartment, trying to make sense of the fact that their daughter was now missing. They began passing out flyers with her photo on them to anyone who would stop to talk in the area, and even tossed them into the hands of people who seemed to be in too much of a rush or too self-important to extend their empathy to Lori's grieving parents. They were also trying to talk to everyone Lori knew, hoping that someone might know something. And throughout their search for their daughter, Lori's mother carried a white sheet in her purse, anticipating the worst. At least her mother would be able to cover her daughter's body if they found her and give her some dignity and privacy. Police started to pursue other means of investigation, going so far as to start hypnotizing several people who were in the area and might have seen something, hoping to help them recall details of that day. While hypnotized, one individual remembered seeing a red or orange van parked in the strip mall parking lot where Lori's real estate office was, where she'd been abducted. It seemed like a small and flimsy lead, but police had little else to go on. Investigators started sharing this information with other agencies, looking for potential persons of interest with a similarly described car, with patterns of behavior that might fit the crime, as well as any possible abduction attempts involving a red or orange van. Tips flooded in, but as is often the case, none led anywhere and police were left wondering where to go next. They came up with no other attempted abductions with a vehicle fitting their description and weren't able to conjure up any persons of interest. Despite the thorough and wide-reaching investigation that Elmhurst PD had undertaken, the tips began to dry up, and all anyone was left with was the fact that Lori was gone without a trace. And just like Linda who had been a prostitute, Lori, who had worked at a real estate office, was slowly being forgotten by the news. The next four months in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs, police found several more murdered women. In each instance, their belongings left behind and their bodies were violated and mutilated in horrifically vivid and increasingly disturbing ways. Some victims were hacked with an axe, some with faces beaten in. But all of the women had their breasts slashed in a sick and disturbing DIY surgical fashion. To add to the horror of these acts, it appeared most weren't performed post-mortem. Their breasts had been removed while they were alive. The bodies of these women were found in alleys, under bridges and in forest reserves along the outskirts of Chicago, and this, in addition to Linda, had been found 40 kilometers away in Villa Park, and Lori, who had been abducted in Elmhurst, who hadn't yet been found at all. It was becoming more and more painfully obvious that it didn't matter what your bias or preconceived notions about sex workers was. If you were a woman in and around Chicago, you were at risk. None of their belongings had been taken. They weren't robberies gone bad. They weren't racially motivated. Linda had been found with multiple stab wounds all throughout her torso, 
but other women had been found beaten to death or hacked at with an axe. There seemed to be no pattern to who was abducted. There seemed to be no pattern to how they were killed. All that strung these seemingly random women together was the crudely removed breast on each of them. It was gruesome and grotesque. There weren't many answers, and this only added to the horror and panic in the community. It had now been five months since the disappearance of Lori, and there were still no answers. She still hadn't been found. Her family still hoped that she was alive, but police were now looking for a body. And it had been 16 months since the discovery of Linda's body, and the case was cold. No witnesses and no possible suspects. But on December 6th, 1982, Beverly Washington, a Chicago prostitute, was found, left for dead, in an alleyway. Her wounds mirrored those of Linda Sutton, and she was rushed to a nearby hospital. She was unable to speak and in critical condition, but despite the tube down her throat and the unstable state she was in, she was able to give police a detailed description of her ordeal. Using a pen and paper as well as hand signals and blinks, through this crude but effective communication, she explained she had been handcuffed and forced to swallow pills. The man then took what looked like a piano wire and wrapped it around her breast, pulled it tight, and then tighter. And then he pulled it even tighter until she passed out from the pain and woke up in the hospital. She described his vehicle as an older red van, just like the red or orange van as described in the parking lot outside Lori's office five months earlier. Beverly also described a plywood partition that separated the back of the van from the driver and passenger seats and had noticed a roach clip and two long feathers hanging from the rearview mirror. One blue and one white. Police quickly got to work and sent the description of the van out to every police officer in Chicago, as well as every police department in the surrounding suburbs, hoping that the information from Beverly would be the help they needed to start making headway and put an end to these horrific slayings. Five days later, Lori's body was found in a cemetery, one of the hundreds of locations her family had searched. Her mother had stood no more than 10 feet from Lori and hadn't known it at the time. Her breast had also been slashed. Police had hoped it wasn't the case, but the family still had hoped that she was alive all these months, that she had merely been taken. But Lori was also a victim of whoever was preying on women in Chicago, the same person who had murdered Linda and the same person who had attacked Beverly and left her for dead. They say things happen in threes. Deaths in the family happen in threes. Good luck happens in threes. Bad luck happens in threes. In every story, there are three acts, and it seemed as if this story with the help of Beverly was entering its third and final act. Only 10 days after the discovery of Lori's body, and 15 days after Beverly was found, police spotted the orange van a blue feather and a white feather hanging from the rearview mirror with a plywood partition. The city of Chicago was large and deafening, 
It's an old city. New buildings are built on the remnants of its history, and a million little secrets are buried beneath its streets. Everywhere you look, there's movement and lights, a million distractions. And through all that, police spotted the van driving down a city street. Officers pulled the van over, and police began questioning the driver, 21-year-old Edward Spitzer. The young man was visibly nervous and explained to police that the van wasn't his. The van, in fact, belonged to his boss, Robin Gecht, a local carpenter and electrician. Was this the name of the monster that police had been searching for all this time? Police went to Robin Gecht's home, and when he opened the door, they knew right away that it fit Beverly's description perfectly. Police took Robin into custody, and after arriving back at the police station, began questioning him. He was calm in front of the police and told investigators he had no knowledge of an attack, no knowledge of Beverly, the woman left for dead. He had been at home with his wife. He couldn't possibly have done this. Investigators were eager to put Gecht into a lineup, but Beverly was still in the hospital and still in critical condition. So instead, police brought Gecht to her. They brought an entire lineup to the hospital, with Gecht in amongst the other men. Beverly, without hesitation, terrified and shaking, pointed directly at Gecht. Robin Gecht was booked on several charges, including aggravated battery and deviant sexual assault, but he posted bond and made himself scarce. A few days later, another prostitute came forward. She, too, had been assaulted by Gecht. Police issued a warrant for his arrest, putting him in jail with no bail this time. But something wasn't sitting well with investigators. There were multiple methods of attack. So many different victim types. Did Gecht have an accomplice? Maybe they had written Edward Spitzer off too quickly. When he had been pulled over, he was nervous beyond reason, jumping at every sound, panicking almost. If Robin was the killer, they were now sure Edward Spitzer had played some part. Police started a series of interviews with Edward, each becoming progressively more intense than the last, slowly breaking Edward's walls down. Investigators wanted him to put the nail in Robin's coffin, and they wanted Edward off the streets if, in fact, he had been involved. But what lurked in those shadows was more sinister than investigators had anticipated. Spitzer began giving police details about the murders. He told investigators that as part of a ritual, Gecht and himself had picked the girls up, stabbed them, and Gecht had removed the breast. Robin Gecht would then have sex with the wound. The breasts were then used in a ceremony. They would go into Robin Gecht's attic. They would then kneel around a makeshift altar, chanting. They would masturbate into the severed breast, cut it into pieces, and eat it. Edward Spitzer confessed to the murder of seven women, including Linda Sutton and Lori Borowski. But along with his confession, he added yet another element of the story police had no idea they were missing. 
19-year-old Andrew Cocorales, who when questioned then implicated himself in 18 individual murders. Andrew also confirmed that Edward, Robin, and himself all had intercourse with the stab wounds. Police looking to find more information about this new Andrew interviewed his brother Thomas, who then also implicated himself in the murders. According to Thomas, Edward, Robin, Andrew, and himself had murdered Lori Borowski. This started with one victim, and assumably one murderer. Now the floodgates were open. What police thought would be one man became two, and then three, and now four. According to Andrew, up to possibly 18 women, not just the one victim. Not only that, but Robin Gecht had fashioned a cult of serial killers, throwing in bizarre elements of Satanism and religious ritualism. Thomas told police the others were afraid of Robin, that he had a special power over them. But no normal human being would be able to function normally the way these men did for months after each murder, after seeing the graphic and torturous death, much less participating in them. I don't know if I've unknowingly met a serial killer in my life. I assume not. But what I do know is it's hard enough to have someone agree on what to have for dinner. What are the chances that four men all met and casually shared these demonic interests over a beer? I can't help but to be left sitting here, talking to you, feeling utterly confused. And I'm not the only one. Police were confused. How could they not? There ended up being four serial killers. How could they not be lost in the sheer mayhem and madness of these cases, losing sight of the forest through the trees? Prostitutes or sex workers are often targets. They are written off as throwaway members of society. And that's because society often forgets them. They are hidden away from the suburbs. They exist as individuals on a corner or street. They work under secrecy, fearing the cops, who can be worse than the clients sometimes. They are looked at as drug addicts and dirty. But beyond what bias you might have, if indeed you have one at all, and despite what little interest the world has in them, it was the strength of a sex worker that led to the arrest of these men. Without Beverly's description of the vehicle, police quite possibly never would have found Edward, or Robin, or Andrew and Thomas. Beverly was the one who tipped the dominoes. Edward was sentenced to death, but the sentence was commuted to life last minute in 2003. Andrew was sentenced to death and was the last execution in Illinois in 1999. Gecht was sentenced to 120 years for the attempted rape and murder of Beverly Washington, but was never convicted of any of the additional murders, maintaining his innocence to this day. He is eligible for parole in 2022. And Thomas, as a reward for his initial confession, was only sentenced to life imprisonment and was released from prison in March 2019. And as of June, Thomas is free, living in Aurora, Illinois.
Hey, creep. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For each five-star review, I get one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. Tales by Cole is a weekly podcast and is released every Tuesday. If you don't want to miss a single episode, make sure to subscribe. If you'd like to follow along on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Tales by Cole and Instagram at Told by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound engineering and editing by Matt Black. And with that, I bid you adieu. Be safe, take care of one another, and don't forget to lock the door. <laughs>